Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. Or something like that. Something like that. And it is, too. Don't it, you think it yeah. is? Uh, well, yeah, I think so. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. This is our 20th episode. Yay. Wow, 20. We made it to 20 episodes. I know. And we have all sorts of listeners and stuff. Yeah. We do. And so... I wanted to do a couple updates before we uh, started. The first one's about Allison Dadao, otherwise known as Alexandra Duval. The yoga twin. The yoga twin. If you listen to our first episode, if not, wow. go listen to it. Yeah. It's very interesting because I found that reading the articles about them, I was like, yeah, I already know all that because I researched it. But anyway, she had a bail hearing. She's in jail awaiting trial for allegedly killing her sister by driving off a cliff in in Maui. Personally, I don't think she intentionally drove off a cliff to kill her sister. That's not like a really guaranteed way to kill someone. Although I would say that if I were the prosecutor, which, you know what? I should be a prosecutor. I know. But I, I think that... <laughs> How do you get that? They're not They're not alleging this, but what I would say would be, okay, she was trying to kill both of... She was trying to do a murder-suicide. That's the only way you could say that she yeah. would do that intentionally, because there's no way you would be like, oh, I'm going to survive this 200-foot fall, but Yeah, my feeling won't. is it was just an angry, impulsive, yes, possibly that's drunken how I feel. act I mean, of manslaughter, maybe, but... Stupidity. Anyways, her bail had been set at $3 million, so Jesus she's, Christ. she's been in jail since November. On February 9th, she had a hearing to reduce bail to 200000 which they were successful at doing that. So she paid the $200,000 bail and is out of jail. But she has to stay in Maui and she cannot drink alcohol or take drugs, which is usually a condition of And of it usually bail. is. I'd like to be forced to stay in Maui. Me too. <laughs> As I said before, I do feel bad for her and I, I think that at the most, it's manslaughter, driving drunk, yeah. probably. I, I don't think she intentionally did that, although they had a very tumultuous relationship. But I don't think a lot of people understand sibling relationships. I don't um, think so either. Although I don't twins. think any of us would drive off a cliff no. with the other person in but the they, car. But like I said, you have to listen to the show. I know. I think they were emotionally stunted. I, I think it's just going to be interesting to problems. see. I just think it's going to be interesting to see how the prosecutor tries to prove intent, no matter what their history and problems were. I know. If I were because, I and this is another thing we can add to our list to ask Matt about. He's off again this week, but when we when he comes back to us, our ask a lawyer is what's required to prove intent. I mean, yeah. lots of times you see how they. Um, I mean, because that's a big part of what charges. Right. And lots of times prior actions aren't included. Yeah. So it has to be that particular act. And I don't even think she ever said, I will kill my, I want to kill my sister. Like so many other people. I want to kill you. To kill. Oh, so we'll kill you. So the other update I had had to do with another story I did, of course, because I'm always on top of the, you know, the uh, zeitgeist, the zeitgeist. What is it? Not really. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> you know what's going on. Oh yeah. What's in the air? <laughs> um. So, <laughs> Uber. I just heard a story this morning on uh, Morning Edition on NPR about safer. It's S A F R. Safer. It's like Uber, but it's supposedly safer for women. Because it's 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 aimed towards women, and although 
they can't have only women drivers and riders because that's discriminatory. So I don't really know. Well, well, part of it is few guys want to be involved in something that's like, you know, it's like a chick flick or something, you know. Yeah. Uh, to me, it kind of, it, we discussed this during the Uber thing, but it kind of defeats the purpose of it being like a lot of women want a woman driver, especially if you're, there are some women who are just afraid to be alone with men for whatever reason or because of religious reasons. Yeah. And I know that is discriminatory legally. But anything you say is going to be like, well, what if you replaced, you know, well, an you ethnic can't, group you can't. with a gender? You can't because I know, and we've talked about that before. Yeah. So anyway, so that's that was another like kind of update. But that's oh, uh, and, and one thing with that too is Massachusetts has updated its background checks because it didn't feel Ubers were a- adequate. Yeah. And more than eight thousand drivers in Massachusetts were found Ooh, to not maybe pass that's the why background sa- check. Safer is starting in the Boston area, yeah. so maybe that's why. And it didn't it didn't break that down by gender and a lot of the drivers who didn't qualify say it's unfair because there may be some charge from 20 years before but it is what it is hey too bad or would you want to get in a car with someone that did something 20 years ago i don't know it I depends mean, on what they did. I'm trying to see. But you don't know. The the point about Massachusetts's background checks is that you don't have to wonder if the person did something 20 years ago because they didn't, well, they can't drive in Massachusetts. Which is good. So you're doing the, um, it's your turn. To yes, it week. is. And today good. we're doing a. Because I didn't, I didn't prepare <laughs> anything. I know. So. Well, I did, more or less. All right. And this came, I would have done it eventually anyway, but one of our listeners, Amber, sent us a message through our Facebook page recommending we do this topic. Oh, good. And it's a very special topic to me because it was the inspiration of for my first mystery novel, Cold Hard News. And when I say inspiration for, it's not about this. My book isn't about this. It's funny, one radio station actually wanted a copy of my book because they heard it was quote-unquote about this, and then when they read it and realized it wasn't so much for that gig. Jerks. But the incident that inspired my first mystery novel, Cold Hard News, was a shooting in Franconia, New Hampshire, in May of 2007. Two people Hmm. died, a police officer, Bruce McKay, and a young man, Lico Kenny. I will not go on about my book, but tell you the story. Okay. All right? But if you do want to read her book, it's called yeah. Cold Hard News by Maureen <laughs> yeah, Thank you. Yeah. And maybe I'll talk about, after I tell the story, okay. what why it inspired the okay. book and what happened there. That's okay, I guess. And thank you, Amber, for, for requesting Amber, it. Amber. So her, it makes it look like I'm not funny. just being... Her name is Amber Geeky Mental. That's a I very, wonder what ethnic group I don't know Geeky that, Mental is. That's a very, I can't figure out if Geeky is her middle name or if or she's hyphenated. hyphenated. Maybe the maybe like name her mom Geeky is and then she is married yeah. to someone named Mental. Uh, uh, maybe Amber will let us know. <laughs> Hey, you know, Amber, we're just kidding around with you. But it was Amber. She listens to us. Okay. So let's go. May 11th, 2007 was one of those early spring nights in Franconia, New Hampshire that seemed like a gift. 
An early rainstorm had washed through the mountain town, but now the late afternoon sun was casting a warm golden glow, brightening the newly green grass and trees and reflecting off the mountains that surrounded the town. Mm. It's very pretty up there. Very very nice setup. New Hampshire's White Mountains. Yes, it's beautiful. Leek O'Kenny, 24, and his friend Caleb McCauley, who was 21, had left work at the Franconia Agway and were headed south on Route 116 around 6 p.m., the cranberry juice and vodka they'd bought at a local store was in bags in the back seat. They were ready for a night of kicking back at the cabin they shared. It was owned by Liko's parents. They were still at their coffee farm in Hawaii, where they spent half the year and hadn't gone back Ooh, to New nice. Hampshire yet. Well, it wasn't as nice as it sounded. Oh. They lived on the edge of poverty, like many in the Kenny family. Yeah. And they um, they were just kind of back to the earth kind of, or are, I should say, because they're so wrong. Franconia police officer Corporal Bruce McKay was also on Route 116 headed north. When he passed Kenny, he turned around. Because he knew him? Well, you'll find out. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Hey, now you you know what it's like. Well, fine. Yeah, I do know what it's like because you do that a lot. No, and you never do it. I'm not saying I don't. I'm just saying I know what it's like. You're upsetting the cats. (laughs) Okay. We don't do that on purpose to be like any other podcast. The cat's just hanging out with us because we're not at Think Tank co-working. Yes, you know, now I've house. ruined the narrative flow of <laughs> okay, my okay, okay, story. Okay, okay, let's go. So, as I said, Franconia police officer Corporal Bruce McKay, also on Route 116, was headed north. When he passed Kenny, he turned around. Franconia's not a big town. They had three police officers. And, you know, people did know each other. Yeah, I bet. Kenny's registration was expired, and he was going faster than the posted 45-mile-an-hour speed limit, though no faster than most people drove on the state's empty two-lane highways. McKay followed Kenny, lights flashing and siren on, until Kenny pulled over into a dirt jug handle at the side of the road. Before McKay got out of the car, he called dispatch and said he needed help from the Sugar Hill police. Franconia only had one cop on duty at the time, this time of day. And when the dispatcher contacted the Sugar Hill officer who was out in his cruiser with another officer, she said she didn't catch the name of the person McKay stopped, but he must be familiar. The Sugar Hill cop, Sergeant Dave Wentworth, had caught the name, and I'm familiar, too, he said. McKay came up to the partially closed window of Kenny's 1984 Toyota Celica and asked for his license and registration. Kenny asked why he was pulled over and refused to turn off the car when McKay asked him to. McKay didn't respond to Kenny's questions, but when Kenny asked for a different officer, McKay didn't tell him Sugar Hill was on its way. You're pretty much stuck with me, he told Kenny. When Kenny again asked for another officer, McKay said, you don't make that choice. Mm -hmm. Kenny took out his phone and started punching in numbers. McCauley, in the passenger seat, nervously asked him who he was calling, but Kenny didn't respond. He didn't get an answer. He tried a couple numbers, and McCauley later said he could see at that point how scared Kenny was. Suddenly, Kenny put the car in gear and tore back onto the pavement, heading south on 116. McKay got back in his Franconia PD Chevy Tahoe SUV Hmm. and followed, lights flashing, sirens screaming. Kenny told McCauley he was going to his uncle's house a few miles down 116 in Easton so they'd have witnesses. He never made it. A minute or two later, frustrated by the fact Kenny wouldn't stop, McKay pulled his Tahoe in front of Kenny's Celica, forcing it to stop. And you can see this all in a video on YouTube that we'll also post on our site. Mm, yes. There's no audio to this particular one because the radio, the audio wasn't working or McKay hadn't turned it on. 
but you can see the chase and what happens after. After McKay pulled in front of Kenny Selica, he did a four-point turnaround so that his SUV was nose-to-nose with Kenny's car. And Kenny, you can see on the videos, pointing out the window. Macaulay later said he was yelling, I'm just going to my uncle's house, which was a real short ways away. But when McKay didn't respond, Kenny backed off the road and into the yard of a farmhouse. McKay followed, and when the car was almost off the road, he accelerated, pushing the hatchback with his SUV, and he ended up pushing it about 40 yards, mm. almost into a big um, piece of farm machinery that was in that yard. Mm. It's, you can tell looking at it, it's a farm yard like a lot of the ones there are. While this was going on, a Chevy Silverado pickup truck that had also been going south on Route 116 stopped and pulled over. And you can see that in the video in the distance. You can see it idling off the side of the road there. Kenny again yelled he wanted to go to his uncle's. And on the video, you can actually see his hand gesturing. Macaulay yelled to the two men in the pickup to stay and act as witnesses. It's not clear if they heard him or not, but they weren't going anywhere anyway. What happened next happened fast. McKay got out of the Tahoe and strided over to Kenny's car, took out a can of pepper spray, and blasted Kenny and Macaulay Mm. with it. You can see it clearly. Just as quickly, he turned to get away from the fumes, apparently, and walked away. As he did, Kenny took out a gun and shot him four times. You can clearly see in the video the gun. You can't see McKay get shot. What you also can't see on the video is McKay stagger across the street trying to unholster his gun. Or Kenny start up the Celica and ram McKay in the back. You can Mm. see the Celica pull out of view. He rammed McKay in the back. Then he pulled back and rammed him again, running him over. And the low-to-the-ground Celica caught on McKay under its front wheels, so McKay was jammed under the car. Yeah. You also don't see Greg Floyd Sr. get out of the passenger seat of the Silverado and, as McKay lay dying under the wheels of Kenny's car, grab McKay's gun, which had flown out of his hand, and shoot it through the passenger window of Kenny's car. The bullets whizzed over McCauley's back. He ducked as he saw Floyd approaching. Kenny, trying to unjam his gun, his eyes still full of pepper spray, apparently didn't notice. He was killed instantly. Floyd then demanded Macaulay take Kenny's gun out of Kenny's hand. Macaulay, to his credit, as scared as he was, refused. He was terrified, and he said he, that he told Floyd, I'm not going to touch that gun because then you'll shoot me too. That's right. And Floyd demanded it again. Macaulay again refused. Floyd told Macaulay he'd killed 23 people and ordered Macaulay out of... Well, first, before he ordered <laughs> Macaulay out of the car, he reached over, jammed his elbow into Macaulay's throat ah. as he took the gun out of Kenny's hand. Since Kenny was dead, there was really no point for him to do that. It was evidence in a shooting of a police officer. One of the many issues I have with this. After he did that, he ordered Macaulay out of the car. Macaulay, terrified, sobbing, got out of the car, kneeled down with his hands on his head as... Um, now, how old were these two, the two young men? Um, Macaulay was 21. Okay. Leek Kenny was 24. Okay. Greg Floyd is 49. Okay. Greg Floyd yelled over to the truck to his son, Greg Floyd... Junior, I'm going to call him Greg Floyd Jr. They're not junior and senior technically, oh. but it's. I don't want to be confusing, so I'm going to call him junior and senior. Oh, that's fine. The, I just don't want people who are obsessed with this case to have one more to thing nitpick. that they're going to nitpick me about. But he yelled over to Greg Floyd Jr. to go to McKay's radio 
asked for dispatch and tell him what was going on. There's nothing funny about this. And yet, dispatch originally thought it was a woman because his voice was so high-pitched. He was probably scared, too. Yeah. I always picture him. Both of the Floyds. So, oh, I'm sorry, did you say what the younger Fred Jr., what, how old Floyd, he was? Greg Floyd Jr. Oh, Greg. Fred Jr. He's He was 18. <laughs> oh, okay. Both of the Floyds were kind of pear-shaped, portly fellas. Mm. And I always picture the young one as looking like Chris on Family Guy. <laughs> In any case, although he not a cartoon. told Dispatch kind of what was going on, although he embellished it quite a bit, saying that the guys in the car had shot at his father and tried to run him over and everything, which hadn't happened. Huh. At this time, the Sugar Hill police were still were still on their way to the scene. There were some people in houses nearby who heard shots, heard sirens, kind of looked out. So people were beginning to converge. But at this point, Greg Floyd was standing there with two guns, both of them aimed at Caleb McCauley, and he didn't seem to want to relinquish it. Yeah, well. And it's funny what you remember, because that was a Friday night, and I was working at the New Hampshire Union Leader, which is the state's largest paper, and it was a statewide, still is a statewide newspaper. And the phone rang, and one of the reporters, Mark Hayward, picked it up. And it was Lorna, the North Country correspondent, an excellent reporter. And Mark said, Lorna's on the phone and says, a cop and possibly somebody else have gotten shot up in Franconia. I can't even remember where I was sitting. It's strange. And he also mentioned after he hung up the phone that that Lorna had said, that some of the people in town thought the cop who got shot was kind of a hard ass. Lorna remembers that she had just, she was buying a house and had driven by it that night, wishing the house had Wi-Fi, and saw some grim-faced firemen blocking the road. She couldn't get down. She knew something was going on. She couldn't raise anyone. She actually had Bruce McKay's home cell phone number, but she didn't have it with her. Mm-hmm. and this was in the nascent days of yeah, cell phone use. Yeah. And she she finally, when she learned what was going on, they wouldn't let the reporters get anywhere near the scene, and she found out that it was Bruce McKay, and she was upset. She said he was a good he was a good cop for reporters. He was always free with information. The fact she had his phone number, even though she didn't know him that well, shows yeah. that he was helpful. New Hampshire's a relatively quiet state with usually around 15 or 20 murders a year. In its history, 16 police officers have been killed by gunfire. It's not that common an occurrence, and the North Country was still reeling from an incident 10 years before when two state troopers, a newspaper editor, and a town official had been shot in Colebrook by Carl Draga, who went on a fatal rampage over a zoning and property issue. By the way, Lorna covered that one, too. Mm-hmm. The year before McKay and Kenny's fatal encounter, Manchester police officer Michael Briggs was shot to death when responding to a domestic violence mm-hmm. call. Well, it's always big news when a police officer is killed in the line of duty, and certainly is in a small state like New Hampshire, the McKay-Kenny killings took that to a new level. But to understand the story, if that's possible... You first have to understand the three men involved, because if any of the three men had been more reasonable, less egotistical, and more willing to behave in a logical manner, the carnage may have been averted, or at least have been less. Leeko Kenny was a member of a well-known area family, the most famous member being his cousin Bodie Miller, an Olympic gold medal skier who some of you may be familiar with. In an area where the people are free to live their own lives and do their own thing, the Kennys did that with abandon. His grandparents, Jack and Peg Kenny, had opened a tennis camp in Easton in the 1960s 
and also gave ski lessons. They lived sparingly and enjoyed the wild New Hampshire landscape and their five children, many of whom built their own homes on the Kenny's property in the shadow of 4,080-foot Cannon Mountain, took that to the next level. Liko's father, Dave, was the youngest, and he and Liko's mother split their time between their Hawaii coffee farm and their Easton cabin. The family was not secretive about the fact they all enjoyed smoking dope, and they were pretty much considered counterculture hippies. Liko's father and aunt and uncle had lived in a house that had used an outhouse. They, you know, they kind of were that type of... Yeah, back to the earth type. Yes, and this is, by the way, the same culture that the people, and of course I shouldn't even talk about them because I can't remember their names, who started the thing on Cape... Never mind. What, you mean like Nearing Scott? Yes, the Nearing. Yes. Yeah, but they originally were at Franconia College. Oh, yeah. And Liko, who had dyslexia and never did well in school, had a fiery temper and not only clashed with the police, but clashed with his family. At one point, angered that his uncle had used a tree to block a trail on his property that Liko was tearing up with his ATV, Liko began cutting down trees near the uncle's house, one of which landed on the house, reportedly, by the way. It's easy to do, I've accidentally done Especially it. in the woods. I almost killed Gordon well, with a branch once. He didn't, he didn't do it by accident. Ah. When he saw his aunt taking photos, he went after her and chased her as she ran shoeless in the snow to a family ah. member's home. She got a restraining order. Mm. In April 2007... Right before the incident, Kenny was convicted of assaulting a 15-year-old cousin who'd taken some belongings, like an Xbox and some DVDs, and his gun from Hmm. Kenny's room. Family members said he was a lovable free spirit a lot of the time, but also could be difficult. His boss at Agway, where Kenny had only worked a few weeks before his death, said Kenny, though opinionated, was hardworking and cooperative. Hmm. Others found him harder to deal with, though often pointing out after his death that he declared the area he lived in the sovereign state of Lico Kenny and seemed to go out of his way to get into scrapes with people, both verbal and physical. He was the type of person, and you'll see this with a little audio clip we have later that just had to argue about everything. Bruce McKay, 49 when he died, had been a cop for 10 years. Originally from New York, he'd held a number of jobs before taking New Hampshire's police course and becoming becoming first a part-time officer in Haverhill, New Hampshire, before he became a full-time one in Franconia, one of three officers in the town, and he had also been an EMT for a long time. Many saw him as a good cop with a strong sense of right and wrong and no patience for gray areas. Others in town were more critical. He quickly got a reputation for being the king of hard asses and didn't help it by having a license plate on his personal vehicle that said, Gotcha. Oh, I thought it would say hard ass. No. (laughs) It might as well have said, because it said gotcha. Well, you know... That can work well sometimes when you're a cop, being black and white. I mean, because there are laws that you have to follow and you can't give people well, a pass. Well, you'll see in some case, in this case why it didn't work as well with somebody like Lee Kenny. I think really good cops, like really good people in any situation in a position of authority, understand how to read people and know certain behavior of people is going to get certain reactions and certain results. Yes. And you can't always be a hard ass or black and no, white. No, that's true. Because all you're going to do is escalate the situation. But, yeah, well, no. I... But you'll see here, McKay was once, and this is from a Boston Magazine article that I found condescending toward New Hampshire and not completely understanding of the situation, but had some good information, including this. McKay once supposedly pulled over a 79-year-old woman for an expired registration sticker. After she tried to explain that she was heading home to cook dinner for her husband, he made her wait in the car for two hours. 
So he was wow. the kind of guy that didn't want somebody to argue with him when he pulled them yeah, over. Yeah, I've met them. When McKay discovered a group of kids celebrating their high school graduation by frolicking along the river, he had every one of their cars towed. Ugh. He'd even threatened to ticket a man for driving his riding mower across the road. Something that so happens. So he's kind of like one of those cops that really, really enjoys the authority yes. part of being a cop. He likes being a cop. Okay. McKay's targets rarely filed complaints, according to this article. Quote, people fared retribution, said Roland Schick, an antiques dealer in nearby Bethlehem. They were afraid McKay would attack their kids or themselves. McKay gained a reputation, this is me again, for using pepper spray to quiet people down hmm. or solve disputes and was known in some quarters as Officer... Pepper, pepper spray, spray or corporal pepper spray. <laughs> yep. The twice-divorced cop's second wife had also, about 10 years before, filed a restraining order against him. Hmm. They had a fiery, volatile relationship. His father said it was basically her fault for being physical, but... Yeah, what, they always you know, say, say that. that. McKay also had a nine-year-old daughter who adored him and a new wife on the way. They were scheduled to get married on top of Cannon Mountain in July. The May 2007 fatal encounter wasn't the first between McKay and Kenny. The first was in January 2003, when McKay came across Kenny's car parked on a dark, snowy Super Bowl Sunday night in the lot at Fox Hill Park in Laconia at around 8 p.m. McKay asked Kenny what he was doing, and Kenny immediately went into defensive mode, wanting to know McKay's name and why he was being hassled. And I won't go through the whole back and forth between them because I find it just annoying. Is that the one that's on the... Yes, yeah. it's the snowy one. And yeah. we'll we'll link to that on our... Yeah, it's like, ugh, We'll God. link to that on our website, but here's here's just a short clip so you can get a flavor of what kind of, this, what kind of encounter this was. I was just wondering what you're mm-hmm. And yours is? Yeah, you have your driver's license handy? Yeah, why? Can I have it, please? Of course. I explained to you why. Actually, no, I didn't hear why you need my driver's license. Because you're in a suspicious place at a suspicious time? How am I in a suspicious place by a suspicious time? You're operating a motor vehicle. You're required to produce your driver's license and your registration on request. Why? Have you I been do have reason? my driver's license, but why do I have to produce it, please? Why? For what reason? I explained to you why. Because I asked what your name was? You were getting back in your vehicle. You weren't mm-hmm. asking me what my name was. Do I have to give you my driver's license? Just Either that or you can be arrested for you fail to identify yourself. Why do I have to identify myself? You don't shine your flashlight in my eyes, please. Why do I have to identify myself to you? Because you're required by law. What law says I have to tell you my name? You didn't take a motor vehicle exam to get your driver's license? I did take a motor vehicle exam. By any chance, did you take a motor vehicle course? Yeah. Then you should know that. That what? Someone sitting in their car has to tell someone their name? Well, at any time, you're operating a motor vehicle. I'm not and you're operating a motor vehicle. You started the car. It's operated. Mm-hmm. It's operated. Oh, I was wondering why you had such an attitude. All right. I was wondering why you had an attitude with me. I was just wondering who it was. Okay. Just do what you are, Lico. So, like, if you want to hear people bickering... Yeah. The encounter huh. eventually devolved into a fracas after other officers were called, at which Kenny, resisting being restrained and arrested, grabbed McKay's testicles, mm. and McKay retaliated by punching him in the face. And there's other video from the cruiser camera on YouTube that has kind of part of the fight, and McKay saying, ah, don't touch me, don't touch me, ah. I mean, not McKay, Kenny saying, don't touch me, don't touch me, 
and you can tell from the video that Kenny is a total pain in the ass. Yeah, he's a he little is a total dickhead. annoying pain in the ass. He reminds me of somebody I worked with in the recent past who every single thing had to be an argument. Yeah, every question um, was um, answered with a question. It's, it's a young man. Uh, well, well, the guy. It's not always, but you know, it's just that kind of thing where yeah. you can't have a reasonable discussion about a no. lot of things with somebody because they just immediately get whiny and belligerent and in question every question you ask them. Every single thing has to be challenged and argued with. And I've seen references to McKay being calm and professional during the encounter on this video, but his behavior actually seemed gauged to pick at Kenny. For instance, when Kenny asked McKay's name, what would have happened if McKay had said, Corporal Bruce McKay, now what's yours? I know, I know. Instead of refusing to give it and demanding Kenny's name and license. What would have happened if McKay hadn't said, when Kenny finally handed over his license and McKay read his name, oh, now I see where the attitude comes from, you know? I may be paraphrasing that. I don't remember that phrase exactly. And that's the part, you know, we just played in the audio. So you, you guys can see that, and it devolves from there. So Kenny was actually correct in his assertion that McKay didn't have the right to hold him. It's under the Fourth Amendment. And the New Hampshire law states that McKay actually should have given his name and had a had a more solid reason for for the interaction but neither had the personality to keep the encounter from getting out of hand kenny was immediately belligerent and defensive and argumentative and uncooperative mckay didn't seem to have the and this is where i talk about the black and white thing not being great didn't seem to have the ability to kind of change gears and I'm not saying he needed to acquiesce to Kenny's behavior, but to treat him in a different way, not a way that was designed to just make Kenny yeah. be more of a dick. And it almost seemed like McKay was getting off on being a on being a dick. And mm-hmm. when people say, oh, he was calm and professional, I almost feel it was a case where he was kind of using his authority in that way to just escalate Kenny's yes. anger. So a simple check on a quote-unquote suspicious vehicle turned into a fracas involving three cops and arrests, two people getting hurt. Kenny later claimed his jaw was broken when McKay punched him, and ultimately a conviction and fine for Kenny. And neither man forgot it. I bet not. And you have to say four years later, it's probably is directly related to what happened mm-hmm. four years later. I'm sure. But neither man definitely forgot it. McKay's girlfriend, who didn't know Kenny, didn't know who he was, and had never heard about that encounter, tells of being with Bruce in a local store and being glared at by Kenny. She was so frightened by it, she said to Bruce, who was that? And he said, I'll tell you later. But she was so frightened by the incident, even though she hated guns, she tried to get him to teach her how to shoot. Wow. And then she just couldn't, and she was upset, and she didn't like, she spent a lot of time alone in his house while he was off on patrol, and she was scared shitless after that. Aww. Kenny and his family hated McKay in turn. Yeah. Bodie Miller got a speeding ticket in 2005 from McKay. Um, he was charged with going 83 in a 45 zone. And if you see the way he used to ski, you know, mm. that's not a surprise. But he left other obligations out of state at the time he was doing commercials and endorsements and all sorts of stuff just to come back to Franconia to contest it in court. And he later told a reporter that he did that just to antagonize McKay. Yeah. So after Lico went to court in April of 2007 for the assault on his cousin, McKay, and this was two weeks before the shooting, issued a four-year information memo to fellow cops in the area telling them to be careful around Kenny, citing his volatile nature and the fact he carried a gun, 
and also citing his drug and arrest history. It's a mystery why McKay didn't heed his own advice when he decided to chase McKay for having an expired by 10 days registration Arrogance. that day on May 11th, why he decided to chase him down, ram his car, and pepper spray him, and all this without the bulletproof vest that he almost always wore. That's weird, too. It was weird. A lot of people said he even wore it like if he didn't have his uniform shirt on. He had it on all the time. In fact, there's an account of one of the the firemen, one of the first on the scene who knew him well and who was trying to perform CPR, expecting the bulletproof vest wow. to be there when he pulled open McKay's shirt. That's and, luck. And it wasn't. He yep. might have even forgot he didn't have it on because he's well, so used to, you know. Well, where he got shot was where the bulletproof vest would have been. Aww. It was also weird fate that of all the people who happened on the encounter that May evening, it had to be Greg Floyd. Hmm. Floyd had moved with his wife and son to the area from Massachusetts a decade before and quickly endeared himself to police. And by endeared, I mean didn't endear. Oh, really? His wife was disabled and they rarely left the house. He also had a variety of ailments that he took a number of prescription medications for. I'm going to read a story that Lorna Calhoun, the New Hampshire Union leader reporter, wrote for the paper in June 2007 after the shooting, recounting some of Floyd his, okay. Floyd's history. There had been some neighbor complaints in 1997 about six months after Floyd moved mm. to his house. The neighbors at the time told police that when they had spoken with Floyd after they after they had heard a lot of shooting on his property, he told them that he was shooting to scare off bears so his son could sleep, and then he apologized for shooting the weapon. But police, who were told by neighbors that he was shooting, and this is me paraphrasing, that he was shooting, they heard what they frequently thought was semi-automatic shooting on his property. So police searched the house, they found six guns, including a Glock 9mm, an Ithaca 12-gauge, and a Ruger Blackhawk, none of which were automatic, though. Floyd stated, When I was shooting, I shot at a tree. I shot at it twice and hit it both times. I can show you where it is. I am an ex-Marine and an expert shot. I don't miss at what I shoot at. Hmm. The Floyds had moved to the area about six months before from Townsend, Mass., according to court papers. A record check in that state showed that while there had been arrests for assault with a dangerous weapon, the charges were dismissed. A day after police conducted a search of his home, May 20th, 1997, so this was almost exactly 10 years before the shooting, Floyd was charged with criminally threatening a meter reader from the New Hampshire (laughs) Electric Co-op. A few days later, troopers Brett Busilil and Scott Bryan visited Floyd to ask him about the verbal altercation with the meter reader. According to court papers, one statement made by Floyd was instructions to his son, go inside and get the pouch. His son returns and says, mom is awake, I could not get the gun. (laughs) (laughs) which I guess is what pouch stood for. Floyd then told the troopers that he could have given them, quote, a third eye, according to the court documents. I know you wear vests, so I could have put it right between the eyes, according to the papers. I was sitting on my Ruger. The case was twice continued that summer. One time was because the troopers would be attending the funeral of the two state troopers killed in the August 1997 Colebrook shooting. Minutes before the trial was to have started in October, the case was dropped. There was a heavy police presence in the court that day. Also in June 1997, Floyd was charged with and later indicted for being a felon in possession of weapons. After a record search in Georgia turned up a 1981 felony conviction for selling marijuana. Those charges were eventually dismissed after Floyd's attorney successfully argued 
that the Georgia conviction would not have constituted a felony in New Hampshire in 1981. Hmm. He was also charged with simple assault for attempting to knee Trooper Bryan in the <laughs> groin and was given a suspended one to three year sentence in the New Hampshire State Prison. Suspended and not to be brought forward after 10 years, according to an order issued on May 28, 1998. So that still would have been in operation. And, you know, I think that maybe in addition to bulletproof vests that maybe... They should wear cups. Yeah. (laughs) I know. He was placed on probation for three years with the stipulation that he not possess any firearms. Hmm. And yet... Yes, and yet. So when Floyd was questioned after shooting Kenny that night... The night of the shooting, the state trooper who questioned him had been one of the ones who had gone to one of the 1997 incidents, and he remembered him well. While many in the area, except the Floyd's wary neighbors, didn't know Floyd or his family, the cops surely did, just like they knew Kenny. While Floyd told McCauley, the young man in the car with Lico Kenny, that he killed 23 people, he told the first cops who talked to him at the scene, the Sugar Hill officers, it had been 46. It took a little. <laughs> I know. It took a little effort for them to get him to put down the two guns, both Kenny's yeah. and McKay's. I'm quicker than you. He warned one cop when he finally put the guns down. Oh my God! Just as with his standoff with the cops ten years before, he told the cops at the scene of the McKay Kenny shooting that he'd done tours in Vietnam as a Marine. Well, he had been a Marine. He joined in 1976 and had never been stationed anywhere near Vietnam. I was going to say, he seemed He like also lied about young. his son's age to police, saying he was a minor when Greg Jr. was actually 18, and told cops at one point he'd talked to Kenny before he shot him, ascertaining Kenny was trying to unjam his gun so he could shoot again. No matter what Kenny's intentions, Floyd never spoke a word to him. He'd immediately shot through Macaulay's partially closed window, and if Macaulay hadn't had the presence of mind to duck, he'd be dead too. Despite the fact when a terrified Macaulay told Floyd he was afraid Floyd was going to shoot him, Floyd said, if I wanted you dead, you'd be dead. In the days after the shooting, Floyd bragged about shooting Kenny and repeated the refrain from 10 years before that he shoots to kill or he doesn't miss when he shoots. So one of the biggest mysteries surrounding this case is why Attorney General Kelly Ayotte, less than 24 hours after the shooting, said that there would be no further charges or investigation of Floyd. And this is the cops knew who he was, knew what his record was. Yeah, I mean... And there's a story I found online about the transcript from his interview with the cops that night. It's not the full transcript, it's just a story about it that I'll also link to our website. Okay. Just because he shot a cop killer does not mean that he is not guilty that is true. of murder. And so this incident, the shooting, divided the town. There are a lot of people who felt, you know, Lee Kenny shot a cop. Yeah, and, and he deserved to so die. So he deserved yeah. to die. I would argue that we have a constitution that keeps people from you acting as judge, yeah. jury, and executioner. Yeah, you can't just... Especially someone like Greg Floyd. There's a lot more to what happened at the scene and that type of thing. There isn't a lot online. I mean, there are things online, but part of it has to do with this being that era when newspapers weren't putting everything online and it's difficult to get stories. I will say there's a book by Casey Sherman called Bad Blood that was thoroughly researched and has a lot of stuff in it. If people, I read that several years ago. But... This isn't where the story ends. Mm. This case divided Frank Conia, particularly the Greg Floyd issue, which is the issue that 
really, really angered me when it happened. I can remember it was a Saturday. It was the day after the shooting, and I was at work when we were reporting. I think I was doing sports that day, but we were reporting at the paper that Kelly Ayotte, who later became a U.S. senator and was defeated. And Donald Trump supporter. Yeah. And although was, she tried to go back on that. And was defeated in November by Maggie yes. Hassan, the governor Yay. of New Hampshire. I remember being really pissed off. And I didn't even know Greg Floyd's background at the time, but just that, how does this bystander get away with with shooting? Without even a... And he said he was doing it because Kenny was obviously a danger and going to keep shooting. Uh, there's a lot of evidence at the scene and other things that indicate that that wasn't necessarily... Well, he didn't need to stop. I mean, what was he stopping there for? He wasn't another cop. No, he was I mean, watching. He was yeah. Well, at first, their vehicles were in the road. Oh, okay. But he, but he told his son to pull over and to wait. I mean, his son he was, was looking for an opportunity to be a macho man. Right, and so he was briefly considered a hero in New Hampshire. Yes. Then, less than a year later, in Littleton, New Hampshire, he got in an altercation with a neighbor. He and his son were driving up a snowy, narrow road... And I think if you've lived anywhere where it snows a lot, you realize how unpassable roads can be. Especially in the mountains. In the mountains. Yeah. And another neighbor, Alma Bover, a middle-aged woman, was driving down. The road behind her was very steep and curvy. The road behind the Floyds was straight and flat. They came to an impasse. She was hoping they would back up and oh, do the neighborly it, it thing. It was yeah. too narrow for them to drive by each other. She was hoping they would back up a little so she could get by. Which is what you have to do. Floyd yeah. was demanding she would back up. It ended up them both getting out of their car. This was <laughs> de- this was December 17th, 2007. She didn't want to back up the hill around the curb. She asked the Floyds if they had reverse on their truck, reported that Floyd asked her the same, and said he would not back up. She said he then asked if she wanted him to pull a gun on her, <laughs> although Floyd denied that threat. Bovair told police she told Floyd she didn't want him to pull a gun because she knew he would use it, to which Floyd responded, because I wouldn't miss either. <laughs> Eventually, Floyd's wife arrived on the scene and backed up the truck. What? Where was Floyd, his wife? I think it was the narrow road going up to, you know, oh, yeah. their, you know they lived on, off a narrow road. You know how those roads yeah. are, narrow mountain road. He was later... What a dink. I know. He was later convicted to one to three years, and I think that happened the the next year or later that year. His sentence was suspended on the condition of good behavior. He and his family later testified in court that Beauvert, there was a bulge under her sweater, and they they assumed she had a gun. She says she's never owned a gun in her life, and they never told the cops that at the time it happened. He was was he convicted of threatening, criminal threatening, or something? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. His court appearances, and I remember seeing them on TV on Channel Nine at the time, which is New Hampshire's only TV station, were quite volatile. He yelled at people, and he obviously was. Crazy. So, <laughs> including after, when he was leaving the courtroom, he started screaming at a retired state trooper. He yelled things like, don't even try it, you goddamn people need to learn America has a constitution of America. <laughs> and he wanted to get his gun back. A bystander started screaming at him. And um, you murdered Leek Kenny, which didn't help things. And <laughs> meanwhile, Bovere said she had been terrified by the encounter on the road. I knowing what had happened with Leek Kenny. And that she had post-traumatic stress syndrome. Uh. 
she, in fact, on the stand, her voice was quivering, and she was... Well, that would be pretty scary. Yeah. I mean, if you came across this person that you knew had shot someone before without without any hesitation he had shot somebody regardless of who he had shot and then the guy says i'm gonna pull out a gun and you want me to pull out a gun and shoot you i mean come on and i know and at court their whole story changed of course the mom and and floyd jr said that bover was aggressive and sought trouble oh and that's when they said that they saw the bulge under her sweater that convinced them she had a boob they said they told state police about it and couldn't understand why it wasn't in the state police's report and another little note on floyd jr that beat right before this trial he'd been fired from a nearby walmart for stealing <laughs> so yeah walmart doesn't mess around with that and floyd had some other things happen he was in and out on court on some other things and it was quickly obvious that he was he was nuts and the dick and the state police knew a lot of his history the night of the shooting and yet he was exonerated other things that happened after the shooting that were... That was a really weird decision for her to make. It was so a quickly. weird decision for her to make, you but she she, would... she oh, was... she was Kelly Ayotte was staking her upcoming run for U.S. Senate on being tough on crime. She had written a death penalty case against Michael Addison, the guy who had shot police officer Michael Briggs in Manchester yes. the year before, and it helped a lot that Michael Addison was black and... That subtle racism that happens nowadays was played for all it was worth. Oh, of course, and he it was, was sentenced to death. It became a federal case, and so I always felt that part of her quick exoneration of Floyd was because of the Michael Briggs, Michael Addison case of the year before, and the cop killing aspect. The whole cop of it, killing yes. aspect, and that she was it was basically a political move oh, on her part she's very because she was yes. running for and she Senate. seems to me to be the type of politician that's very aware of her appearance and makes her decisions based on what her constituents how the wind is blowing yes and i don't recommend reading a lot of the comments on these videos and stuff yes because there's a bunch of youtube but you can see how people's feelings about this and i'm not i don't want anyone to feel i'm defending lee kilkenny in any way but i also people who start yelling about the constitution you have to you if you're if you're gonna if you're gonna cite the Constitution, which we all should as Americans, all of it matters, yes. not just the parts that you when like. When someone commits a crime, the, the Constitution says they they have a right to go to court to be represented because you can't. You can't start cutting corners with that stuff. You can't just say, well, it was okay because... And look at the power that gave Greg Floyd to behave the way he did. I know. And and so my anger at that, I couldn't do anything about it, particularly working for a newspaper, but that's kind of what fueled the plot of Cold Hard News, my first mystery novel, that... I couldn't do anything about what had happened. I couldn't do anything with this anger, except for channel it into a book. And as I said, the book isn't about this. No, it isn't. As a matter of fact, the characters in the book are both much more likable or, or and less, in, I think, less intense. Intense and flawed, but at the same time, I think what happened in in the book, as as real life, between the two men without Floyd, before he showed up, is that they allowed their anger and their... um, Egos. Egos. And their personality of... I'm in... You know... Lico Kenny was an unstable person. Yes. He was a volatile, unstable person who had 
exhibited violence against his family. Bruce McKay knew he was volatile and unstable and had a loaded gun. Like he wanted to poke the bear or something. But I don't Bruce know. Bruce was like, kind of like a power. I'm in power. Ha ha. You know. I mean, I'm not. I don't want to minimize thing, it. But right. And I think one thing he felt was that because and and this isn't even a criticism of him, but one thing because he was the police officer and Lico Kenny wasn't that he would prevail. And yeah. I almost think there was a disconnect between knowing how dangerous this kid could be and knowing where his power like ended I said, it's, it's and the fact that he was a human ar- being who was arrogance. As, right, a human being who was as vulnerable as any other human yeah. being. I have to tell you, if I were a cop, especially in a small town, I would not have gotcha on my license plate because I feel like that's what's saying. And it wasn't on his cruiser. I mean, the, it's almost like in, in our in our Logan Mar um, episode eighteen <laughs> episode eighteen how that caseworker for DHS said, "Well, that's why they're clients and we're not." Right. It's that, and I think that the the cops that are successful as well, not being, it's not, you have to understand. It's not being soft and it's not being lenient. It's it's not acquiescing. It's just understanding the gray areas. Yeah. And be treating everyone with respect, regardless of what station in life they are. And or even if you don't like the person, even if you find the person irritating and they're giving you a hard time and you think the person's an asshole and doing drugs and everything else, even if you don't, feel you should treat the person with respect understanding how to get what you want out of yes. that person rather than knowing which i fully feel in that in the video from 2003 wanting to push their buttons. to me it's clear bruce mckay is saying is is making it clear to Lico kenny i'm the boss and i'm going to push you around as much as i can though i know i'm being video and audio taped so i'm not going to go beyond what i can go beyond but i'm still going to push you around and the town was so divided on this that in 2010, so, and here's an indication of how really divided the town of Franconia was. In 2010, the New Hampshire Senate passed a measure that would name a portion of State Highway after Bruce McKay, 2.8 miles on Route 18, which is not, by the way, where the shooting happened, hmm. some Franconia. And at town meeting in Franconia, residents voted 93 to 73 not to do it, wow. not to support it. So 93% and, voted no. And two people spoke in favor of it at the town meeting, one being the woman who was going to marry McKay, who had a hyphenated last name, and part of it was McKay at this point, even hmm. though they didn't get married. Oh, that's odd. And then another person who supported him. No, And this is typical, I think, of uh, New Hampshire and even a main town. Even though people didn't speak against it, nobody wanted to get up and say bad things about him in public. Yeah. And yet, they weren't going to support it. No. And, you know, people have cited the fact that there were eight only, quote-unquote, complaints against McKay in the time as an officer and a lot of commendations, but people don't complain. That There yeah. was that quote from that one guy saying people were afraid to complain, and it's true because it's a small town. Another interesting thing that I came across when I was doing this is after the shooting, Channel 9 actually doing some journalism did a... Was that supposed to be Channel 9 actually doing some journalism? I know, I'm sorry. Did a records request, state records request for all the acts of force that McKay had been involved in. And they got things that included him shooting a moose that had been hit on the highway, which cops frequently have to do. Yes, I had to witness that once. You know what it didn't include? The 2003 incident that involved Lico Kenny grabbing his balls, him punching Lico in the face, 
and Liko being arrested, and they they showed on Channel Nine the Channel Nine report, um, and we'll link this to our website too. The town's attorney saying, "Oh, you know, we're embarrassed that that's missing. We don't know how it's missing." Blah, blah, blah. But so you wonder what uh, what else is missing. I and mean, that's what everybody knows about. Even if you're not afraid, a lot of times you just don't even occur to you. You know, it's like, why bother? Why bother complaining? I just want it behind me. They're not going to do anything about it anyway. So. Right. <coughs> right. And you all know. it's going to do is cause me trouble because they know who I am. Yeah. And I know who they are. And Lico Kenny seemed to enjoy incurring people's wrath. Oh, yeah. So yeah. He has he issues, definitely. And the final time this so made... So three men with issues. Right. And the final time this made news was Lico's dad sued Floyd and the town and the police for the shooting in 2012. He lost the lawsuit. It's interesting if you read, and I'll link that to our website too, when you read the decision by the judge, the judge says, for instance, that Dave Kenny, Lico's dad, cited the fact that McKay rammed Lico's car. The judge said he was just moving the car off the highway to get it out of the way, but if you watch the video and also read accounts of it, the car, Lico moved the car off the highway, and you watch the video, it's obvious McKay is ramming the car. In fact, at one point, he... He reverses a little and then goes forward and rams it more, and they're off the highway. He he pushed it. You can see the tire tracks and the dirt. He pushed the car 40 yards into this <laughs> yeah, farm machinery. Yeah. So even the court decision, it's like the officials, law enforcement, Kelly Ayotte, et cetera, were circling their wagons around. This was a justifiable do. killing of a guy who killed a cop, and you're not going to win the Portland Press Herald, in fact, did a story a year or two about here in Maine <laughs> that of all the kill of all the shootings by police of other people, and I know that police didn't shoot anybody in in the McKay Kenny story, but they've always been found to be justified. There's never been one found to be unjustified, and, and Legal Kenny certainly wasn't justified in killing Bruce McKay, but yet he's referred to in stories as a cop killer, which I feel is incendiary and implies that it was okay for Greg Floyd to do what he did. There's a lot of things that weren't okay in everybody's behavior in this. And there are a lot and of things that could have made this just another encounter. And Greg Floyd did not have to... He can say that he was worried that Kenny was going to shoot him. But he did not have to get out of his truck. He didn't... He could have... He may not have had a cell phone, but he didn't have to get out of his truck. He could have driven away to find safety. Nobody was pointing a gun at him. And I know in Maine that when, like, say you shot somebody and you're saying it's self-defense. Part of the law, and we can talk to Matt about this to clarify that I'm correct, but I think I'm correct in saying that part of the law is if you have a way out, if you have a way to get away, you can't claim self, or or it's not right. Well, he wasn't. He wasn't claiming so much self-defense. It was. It's kind of muddy what he was claiming. He was claiming that Lego Kenny was going to continue to try to kill Bruce McKay. Now oh, Bruce had been shot four up. times in the gut and, and was run over. at this point resting under the wheels of Lego Celica, and it took four or five men to even move it enough to get him out of there. He was still alive when they got him out, oh, but um, oh. life-saving measures failed he was just you know and of course floyd when they were working on him floyd said that guy's fucked and one of the cops one of the sugar hill cops said to floyd he's gonna give up if you say that yeah, he him. can hear and you. he had a lot of trouble getting floyd 
out of the oh, way. Yeah. And meanwhile, Floyd Jr. was over there harassing poor Caleb McCauley, who was just sitting on the ground crying. And it was a bad scene. And I, I just don't understand why nobody looked at Greg Floyd and said, you know, this guy shouldn't have shot Someone this probably, kid. I'm sure there were people that Let's did. bring this kid to trial and, you know, throw the full yeah, extent of the law against him. And let's reel it back for a minute to when Bruce McKay first pulled over Lico Kenny that night. When Lico pulled over and Lico said, I want another officer here. And part of the thing after the 2003 encounter with the ball grabbing and the face punching and yeah. the snow and the arguing was that there was kind of a loose agreement with the police chief of the town, Montminy, that when Bruce McKay pulled Lico Kenny over, they get another officer there for everybody's protection. And and I, I don't remember if it was the police chief or if it was part of the court decision. But in any case, there was an understanding. What would have happened? I mean, Bruce had asked that Sugar Hill come and back him up, but he didn't tell Lico Kenny that. And the way, re- reason, yeah. what if he had said to Lico Kenny, Sugar Hill's on its way. Why don't we wait here for them it's to come? Because it's the whole control type and, thing right. of not telling your name, not telling, not telling people stuff is a way to keep into control. So he, he knew, but he wanted the kid to squirm a little yes, bit. Yes, he wanted. Unfortunately, what happened was the kid he, got so scared that he. Right. And he didn't want to, and he didn't want to be look weak by yes. saying yes. He didn't want to be, he didn't want to make it seem like Lico Kenny was in control yeah. by backup coming yeah. as Lico Kenny had wanted. And another thing is, I'm not sure what was going on with Lico Kenny mentally, but he had, in the month before this had happened, become more and more paranoid, more and more scared. He had told people something bad was going to happen to him. And I don't think it was necessarily prescient. I think he, he, this is certainly a case of him making something bad happen to yes. him. But you wonder what the kid's mental state was, his volatile behavior was, that he that if this hadn't happened, something else yeah. would have. Well, it's, it's too bad probably, that it happened this His way. behavior probably pissed a lot of people off. I mean, I've, I uh, met a lot of people. It did, but he was, he was on the edge. He was very nervous and paranoid and, and jumpy, his friend said, and just sure something bad was going to happen to him. Hmm. So anyway, it's a tragic story. It is a tragic, and it's not a simple one. People like want things to be in simple little boxes, and if and if no. a cop gets shot, there's good guys and bad guys. And well, there's never- a confluence of a lot of things, as especially, like I said, personality clashes and egos and freaking mental illness and guns. Well, a lot of the and police involved. And pepper spray. And the only person that did not fire a gun is the one that was supposed to have one, which was the cop. I mean, he right. tried, but I mean, he he's allowed he to have already. a gun. Lico, I don't think was a, was supposed to have a gun. I don't know if that was if he legally had a gun. I think it was legal because it's New Hampshire. But Floyd was not supposed to have guns because was he, he was a felon, convicted yes. felon. Okay, so and least, he didn't have one. He was he, he just was he, picked he was up the one the two that was and was he enjoying saw, waving them at everybody. Oh, jeez. So, so that's interesting. So you know, and people ask writers all the time where we get our ideas. <laughs> so well, there's yeah. one of the answers. You get the you get the uh, an inspiration. It's just an inspiration because I think a lot of times you hear writers, and I'm not a writer, so but they'll say, well, something happened, 
and then I thought, what if blah blah blah, right. you know? And that's how you get your in fact cold ideas. hard news. It's funny because I had when I first started writing it, I had wanted to somehow work this in, but also I was out running one day and it was March and there you had, it had been a very snow. I did at the time, <laughs> hard to tell now, but I did at the time, and it was a very snowy. Had been a very snowy winter. In fact, I was training for the Boston Marathon. Wow. And you have to run in the winter. I ran for the liver team. Go liver. But, and the snowbanks were very high, but they had been melting. And as usual, and there were like, you know, crushed Mountain Dew bottles and, and branches poop. and dog poop and all sorts of stuff coming out of the snowbanks. And as usual, I thought, what if there was a body? So that's how the book opens wow. with a body in a snowbank. And the big challenge as a writer was, how does it, what does the body in the snowbank have to do with this shooting? Uh-huh. And you so brought it all together. I brought together. it all together. Very yeah. nice. For better or worse. On that note, that's our topic for this week. You'll have something next week, right? Yeah. And, yeah. And sure now, why don't we just go to the recommendations? You. <laughs> Have you thought about what you want to do for recommendations this I week? I have. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm reading a book by Anne Rule. Ooh, yes. And it reminded me that we never really acknowledged the recent death of I the know. queen of true crime books. And she is. And I had mentioned last there's week. There's none better. Right, that I gone to the library to get a copy of The Stranger Beside yes, Me. Yes, which I should reread. I haven't I had read to that order it years. from another library. <laughs> but the thing... The thing about Anne Rule, for those who aren't familiar, and I can't imagine no one is, she is the absolute master of true crime books. And she had had a bunch of different careers. Was she a cop? I think so, or something to do with that. But she worked on a suicide hotline next to Ted Bundy. Yes. Before he was, Before. or maybe during, was he? It could have been during. I mean, who knows he when he started so killing many women? And so her weirdo. first book was *The Stranger Beside Me* about Ted Bundy. Oh, I get it. You never got that before? Yes, I did. Oh, okay. I was, okay. Just, I was, I was just say. being stupid. But the thing I like about her books, the the one I'm reading right now is called something like Everything She Ever Wanted. And stuff. I think I read that. And except for The Stranger Beside Me, they all those kind of generic titles. Yeah, I know. Like a lot of books do. But this one was written in the 90s, and it's about a woman in... The one that stabbed herself in the leg? I haven't gotten oh, to oh, that oh, part oh, oh, yet. Oh, 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 oh. I'm only halfway through it. Okay. But thank you for Spoiling. explaining why the mysterious <laughs> abscess on her leg doesn't heal. Now that is the one. Yes, but I like that she, one. She and as usual, she kills a lot of people. The thing I like about Anne Rule's books is they're written like novels. Yes, and she does a great job. I trust her facts and everything totally. I trust that, and she does a great job fleshing out all the characters in the book because even though they're real people. In real life, they are actually characters. They're people who have personalities and histories and everything. And she always, you know, that you feel like you know them. And so it helps understand the story and how things go. And you have a stake in the detective. You want him to catch the person or, you know, stuff like that. Right. And she doesn't do, like, a lot of true crime books, there's kind of this awkward balance between you know, attributing information and all that kind of thing, as well as making the book a compelling narrative. And I'm not going to say she doesn't worry about attributing information. You know her information is based on extensive interviews yeah, and research. Yeah, she does a lot of research. But it's written like a novel. It's yeah. written like a narrative. And it's always very interesting. She does a great job of keeping you in suspense 
and making the narrative interesting and the characters interesting so that you're not constantly getting kind of pulled out of it by the type of thing some other true writer true crime writers yes and there's a lot of good true crime writers but her books i don't don't think i've ever read a book of hers that i haven't enjoyed yeah i anytime that i'm trying to think of if i need something to read that's gonna be really involving and i like we've talked about before we usually we like long books i always know that if i pick one of her books i'll enjoy it and it'll keep me interested and involved. Like if I'm on a long trip or something like that, I always look for her something. That me she, too. But the problem is I've read so many of her I books. I know, and and because of the titles, I can't always tell if I've read. I them. have to look at the pictures. I know, and that's I was going to bring that up. Another thing I like about her book books is there's chock full of pictures. Because there's few things more disappointing about a true crime book than to get one that doesn't have photos. I hate. Or the only ones. has a few photos. I remember once when I was um, it must have been in the night. It was like late 80s early 90s I had I think it was an Anne Rule book and someone in one of my classes was like what's that book and I was like oh it's about whatever murder and and she's like how can you read no first I said and I said look it's got I love to look at the pictures I'm like I I go back and look at the pictures I know me too I keep looking me too like I look at them the first thing yes and then as I'm reading I go back and look I do too the the only oh were you still telling well I was gonna say and she was just like how can somebody read something? Why would you read something? Well, there's a like lot of boring that. fucking people in and the world. And I was like, fuck uh, you. But one one problem with this one is I got it out of the South Portland Public Library, which isn't a problem. But apparently, at some point, the pictures fell out or somebody tore them Aww. out, and they were put back. Not only were put back in the wrong order, but there seemed to be a couple sheets of pictures missing. Like the woman, the murderess's son, Ronnie. There are no photos of him in it, and. I'm- and yeah, but there's uh, tons of photos of like her daughters and stuff. Like there's people, you just feel like there's photos yes. missing, and it, it's bothersome. To Although me. you can look on the internet. I plan to. Interesting. And some of her books, even though I can't remember the titles, really stick out to me. Like there was one in Washington D.C., and the guy was I can't remember what he did, but he was I think he was a doctor. And he ended up killing his Probably girlfriend. Probably a dentist or a doctor. A, they always do. Yeah, he ended up killing his girlfriend on their sailboat and dumping her in Chesapeake oh. Bay. I think his name was Craig Fahey or something like that. Well, there was that girl that they that the um, I don't think she wrote a book about that though. The one that the one that worked for the governor or whatever. That's that possible. That one. This one. Her name was Mary Beth. Or yeah. Beth or yeah. I think it's the same one. Did she write a book about? Did I? She read, did. Because it was at the library. Book about it was that. at the library, and I'm like, oh, I've read already hers. read this one. And she had curly hair. She was. I, I yeah. think so. Yeah. 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 But she and she has one great thing is she has so many books and she had a bunch of books I saw at the library of short. Yeah, I don't story, like. I've read. Yeah, I, I don't like those as much. Yeah, me I like neither. The long Just, involved me too. ones. Yeah. So I think anyone who likes crime or true crime can just go pick out any Anne Rule book at yes. random if they're not familiar with her and enjoy it a lot. Yes, yeah. I agree. And the bad guys always get theirs in the end. Yes, and she does a good job of explaining. I think she wrote one about the one, uh, Shane Alexander wrote one, and I think I think Anne Rule wrote the other one about the woman, and she was in Utah. She got the death penalty. She killed her husband. Sure, she had to be sons, more specific. She had her sons kill her husband. Oh, I don't remember really that weird one. one. I don't remember and, that. And and it was interesting because they 
Shayna Alexander's book was a lot differently written, but it was still good. Yeah, it's funny when you read a book by her and then you read a book by someone else about and, the same crime, how different they can be. And I don't know if she wrote one about Jean, about the uh, the Atkins diet killer lady. I don't think she did. But Shayna Alexander wrote one about her, too. But the, she has a different way. I don't know it's if more... I've ever read any of Shayna Alexander's. They're good, but they're more... You remember her from Point County. I do remember her. They're more... They're less full of facts, I guess you'd say, which, and I'm not saying that as a bad thing about Anne Rule. I like all the, she, the way she weaves all the facts in, so it's, but it's not like, uh, you know, this is, this is just a list of, but her books are a lot longer. Uh, Anne Rule's are, are longer. Anne Rule's are longer with See, more, I like them to be with longer more information. with more information. She must have done and a hell pictures, because I don't think Shana had pictures. Yeah, you have to have the pictures. I think some people think it's tacky, but we want to see no, pictures. No, we want to see pictures. That's why I don't like on my nook. You can't make the pictures it's, bigger. Well, and you I, can't, uh, and you don't know where to go to find them. Even with, with Kindle, pictures. too. With Kindle, too, unless the photos are listed in the table of contents, you have to go through the whole thing. And this, yes. this book, and that's one reason, and I do have an, I have a Nook and a Kindle, and I also do iBooks. I do iBooks, too. But that's one reason sometimes there's just nothing like a good old print book, because you can keep turning to those photos and yes. then turning back. Which we like to do. Yes, yeah. we do. As you learn more about the characters. And I think actually that everything she ever wanted, I think I read it when I worked at Home Depot because I think somebody left it in the break room. Oh, wow. Someone finished it and left it and I was it, like, oh, Anne Rule. And then I started reading it. Was it was written like in 92 or 93. Yeah, yeah I remember it wasn't it wasn't new and when I, I read it. And I that woman's husband was just this, just this naive chump. Uh, that's what she looked for. Yeah, she had chunks. another one where the woman killed her husband um, with the old uh, arsenic and the Gatorade. No, it's not arsenic and Gatorade. It's it's um, oh, but she get it's the what is it? Antifreeze, the ethanol, antifreeze. But this lady was it was arsenic. She, uh, oh, they so thought the he had MS. The antifreeze and the Gatorade is because it's antifreeze sweet. has that sweet. Yeah, but the arsenic is bitter. I don't know if it was Gatorade, but she did. She killed him. And her daughter, I think, or she killed more than one husband. Oh, right. And, and they thought they had MS. Or, and then didn't she try to kill her daughter to make it look like... Maybe, but there but was other... There's her. been oh, several I'm getting them people. Mixed up. No, there's been several people yep. yeah, that do that. They yes, like to kill their whole families. Well, it becomes a trend once people see it Once happen. you see it. Yeah. Well, and also once you see, oh, wow, that worked. Yeah. Oh, I killed that now guy. I can I'll get rid of the rest now of I, them. Right. Yeah, there was another lady I saw on Dateline who, whose daughter... And she killed everyone in their family. Yeah, that's the one there. I was just thinking of. Except for one lived. One one yeah. lived, and then she's like, oh, well, I don't know if they really did it. Anyway. But anyway, so, th- so, so that's, that's our fun. Yes. And until next week, when you'll be doing a topic. I will. Yep. I can't wait. I can't wait either. It'll be exciting. It will. It won't be a kid dying. And until well, then, actually, uh, it will. There, do kids do die? Yeah. Sorry, until then. Mind. Until uh, then, bye. Oh no way! <laughs> you can rate us and review us on on iTunes, iTunes. or donate. You can donate on. on and our, if you have any topics you'd like us to do, or questions for us, or anything else, you can always email us. Email us at crimeandstuff at gmail dot com. Yes. Go on our website, Crime and Stuff Online. There's a contact Yes. Form. Tweet at us. Which is or, Crime and Stuff. Yeah, or go on with an ampersand. Oh, it is? Because on Facebook it's an ampersand. We do this every time, don't we? I think on Twitter, it's, if you if you do 
I don't know. I know on Facebook it's an ampersand. We, what do you you think, can Daisy? do like Amber Geeky Me- Mental did to have us do Bruce McCain, Lee Kenny. She sent, she us, sent a us a Facebook, Facebook message. message. You can't really, po- you can post replies on our Facebook page, but you can't You like, can't post on it. Yeah. You can reply to stuff. You can read, you can comment on it. I mean comment, yeah, that's what I meant. I was thinking of Twitter. Uh, I'm all about Twitter now. Yeah, you're, see, I, once I brought you around to Twitter, you were, well, you because I was getting sick of political arguments on Facebook, well, so uh, well, they, now all my politics are pretty much on yeah, Twitter. Yeah, Twitter is crime and stuff without an ampersand. Oh, okay. And then, um, so Facebook the only one has the ampersand. I think we had the same yes, exact we conversation. we do. We have it every week. Yeah, see, with Twitter, you can just put something out there and then walk away. Facebook, you get into these long involved and people post you know, comments and, oh, stuff and like tell that. me I'm uneducated and yeah. all that shit. Yeah. People who barely have a GED tell me I sound very uneducated. Well, they people like you've been told this more than once. Yes. Wow. Yes. Maybe you need to unfriend some people. I did. Well, they yeah. weren't my friends. They were friends of friends. So I don't I think I've my ever privacy. been told that on Facebook. It's by because. I don't even. But want in to get any started. case, let's let's not let's go that we can end up doing a whole lot, two hours or something. Just how on. fucking stupid people are. Yeah, that's true. No offense to anyone who's stupid who's <laughs> listening. Well, the great thing is they don't they know. don't think it's them. No, they don't. So, They're but it's not. Stupid. But the rest of you, it's certainly not you guys. Anyone that listens to this podcast, has yeah, you've be, made it this far. You've got to be smart. You're wicked smart, as we say. Anyways, I think we've digressed. That's enough. it. For, that's it for this week. Okay. okay. See you next week. Bye bye. What do you think we should do for recommendations? Well, you today? know what I was thinking. We never really acknowledged the death. Of the queen of true crime, and rule. Yes, and rule. Oh, and that's that lobster guy from across the street. The one who's. Yeah. who's I guess I shouldn't say that. You shouldn't say that. Should we start over? Yes. Okay. There's start over. like four guys that live there. Yeah. Start They're over. all eligible bachelors. Uh, mm.